When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You accuse me of podcasting baseless suspicions? Baseless, yes. You'd meet this with your own podcast. Your life is compounded of podcasting, not mine, Thufir. Then you question my abilities. <sighs> Thufir, I want you to examine your own emotional involvement in this. The natural humans and animal without Logic Pro 10. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. We'll be exploring the themes, philosophies, and characters found in the sandy depths of this vast universe, from Frank Herbert's groundbreaking novels to the adaptations on film and TV. My name is Leo. And my name's Abu. And today, the book club continues. We are into... <laughs> we are into <laughs> episode three. We've made it to the third installment. Who would have thought? Yes. Ah, so exciting. We have committed at this point, you know, like one or two, there's an exit strategy. Maybe we quit, <laughs> right. but it's too late now. We got to do the whole thing. Contractually <laughs> obligated. Contract with whom? Who knows? But we're here. <laughs> we are here. Yes. And as a reminder, you and I, Leo, will be reading the entirety of the Dune novel in preparation for the upcoming film over the course of a roughly 10 episode Special series, we will be diving deep, deep into the pages of Frank Herbert's iconic novel. Indeed. We've already covered the first 200 or so pages in our previous two episodes, and today we'll be continuing our deep dive. And you know what? It's a book club, so we want to hear from you. We want to hear your thoughts as yes. we are making our way through this incredible book. We have already received some awesome listener messages, and we will, as we have been, Include a couple of those in uh, in each of these book club episodes. So email us at gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. I know it's the first time you've heard that, but listen, <laughs> hopefully it makes sense. Gamjabarpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, at the top of the show, we always want to take care of housekeeping. We always want to make sure we give a spoiler notice. Today's episode will contain no spoilers except for the pages covered thus Far. Which is still no spoilers. <laughs> like, Which is still no spoilers. No spoilers right. work, yeah. <laughs> exactly. The idea is that you're reading along with us and you've done the reading, you've done the homework. Oh, shit. This isn't AP English in seventh grade, my guy. Okay, you can't skip reading Catcher in the Rye right. and expect to write an essay on it. Oh my God. Hands up if you <laughs> skipped Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> All of us, I'm pretty sure. I read it yeah. eventually. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So all of that having been said... Once again, our goal with this book club is to be your expert guides through Frank Herbert's iconic story. 
If this is your first time reading, we want to make that experience the best it can be for you. And if you're revisiting Dune for the second, third, (laughs) 15th, 100th time, we want to be here to point out some of the tiny, tiny lore tidbits and details that you might have missed in your previous read-throughs. We've got some really good ones today, too. Yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah, some deep dives. Oh, it's amazing. It's so much fun. But before we get into our summary and get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode, as we like to do on these book club episodes, we want to answer some mailbag questions. Yeah. So, Leo, first up, we have an email from Dan Dodwell. Dan, thank you so much for writing in all the way from the UK. Which is relevant in a minute. (laughs) So we have the message. Hi, Abu and Leo. I'm a fairly new Dune fan, currently on God Emperor. Oh my gosh, enjoy that trip. But I'm hooked. Definitely my favorite book series. I can't believe it took until I was 40 to read it. I always heard it was a difficult read, which put me off. Where has Dune been all my life? I love the podcast, first-time podcast listener too, and hope you guys continue with the book club after book one. Your review episodes of House Atreides are hilarious, I have no intention of reading it because it sounds dreadful, but it's great to know how attractive. That's the first time I'm reading this. But it's great to know how attractive each character is. So good. My favorite episodes, though, are the more deep dive ones the Orange Catholic Bible, Holtzman, etc. On that note, how about an episode on the encyclopedia? Is it worth buying considering the hefty price tag on eBay these days? Anyway. Just a shout out from the UK to say hi and to let you know the podcast is great. Oh, and one last thing. In the UK, we'd pronounce Dune as June. Do I need to start calling it Dune? <laughs> Keep up the good work. Ah, yes. Dune. June. Yes, my favorite book series. June. That's the month it is right now. <laughs> Dan, thank you so much yes. for the incredibly kind words. What a great email to get. That's why we do what we do. But to get to the question in that email, Dan asked us, Leo, whether or not we think it's worth it to buy the Dune Encyclopedia, considering how pricey it is these days on Amazon and on eBay. And just for those who aren't aware, I went ahead and did a little shopping around because I wasn't sure what the price tag these days is either. Yeah. It is anywhere from a measly $100 to $200 to more than $400 Crazy on Amazon oh or God. on eBay. So we're talking massive price tag for the Dune Encyclopedia. And why is that? Well, it's been out of print for a long time. Yeah. No one's making new ones. And with Dune hype at kind of an all-time high recently, and especially mm-hmm. as, as more projects are coming out and, and all this stuff... It is becoming a collector's item that, of course, as demand rises, so too does the cost of what is left if there is no supply. Exactly. Yeah. That's capitalism 101, baby. (laughs) Pretty soon it's going to be worth as much as spice itself. Oh, my God. A handful of Dune encyclopedias could buy a house under peel. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So that having been said... To answer Dan's question, I want to kind of start with a caveat here. That is a lot of money. Yeah. $400 is a lot of money. And (laughs) to be completely clear, I hope I speak for the both of us when I say that we don't necessarily feel 
fully comfortable telling someone what to do with four to five hundred dollars of their hard earned <laughs> cash. Unless it's spending it on the encyclopedia. Go for it. Do it. Do it. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay, Just clearly kidding. I only speak for myself here. <laughs> so really all we can do is share our opinion of the encyclopedia and um we recommend everyone use their best judgment on whether or not to scoop up one of those very rare copies of the encyclopedia that are floating around the internet these days. So as huge Dune fans, we've gotten quite a bit of value from the encyclopedia, I would say. A lot of this podcast, in fact, many of our episodes on this very show are sourced from the encyclopedia, from all 700 pages (laughs) of that massive, massive body of work. Right. But that having been said, you and I don't have one of those $400, $500 physical copies of the encyclopedia. Right. You and I, um, let's say, acquired a digital copy of the encyclopedia through other means on the internet. Esmar Tuick. <laughs> Esmar Tuick cooked us up. Yeah. Exactly. The famous smuggler. But if you're interested in the encyclopedia and the deep knowledge it contains, just know that you absolutely can find digital copies out and about in that great big thing called the internet. Just wanted to caveat that if you are a first-time reader and you're listening to this book club, just so you know, the encyclopedia was written and published at about the same time as the fifth Dune book. So it does contain very like broad spoilers for the goings-on of the first four books. So just be aware, I would recommend get through the first four books, finish the first four books, before you start idly leafing through either a PDF or one of these very expensive sought-after paper books. Yeah. Now that all of that is out of the way, let's jump into this episode's reading, which is, uh, of course, pages 205 to 324, up until that big break with the uh, Muad'Dib book two page, which could be confusing if you're not familiar with uh, (laughs) Dune's origins. So just as a quick kind of side note this is actually because of dune's origins as a serial publication it was kind of published in three installments yeah you you can sort of consider it like the arcs of the story we're going to be concluding the first arc of the novel today so as usual we'll start off by summarizing the chapters that we read for today's episode and then we'll dive into our three key takeaways from this section of the reading and then we'll round out the episode with our deep dive nitty-gritty lore nuggets. (laughs) Oh, they're great. So chapter 16, it's dinner party time. This is a huge, huge chapter, but there's a lot of really good stuff here. Let's get through it quickly. Duke Leto and Jessica are having the esteemed Arakeen locals over to kind of begin this process of building rapport with the people of Arrakis, establishing allies and sniffing out Harkonnen sympathizers and spies. You know, Jessica has a line about the Atreides men getting to know people and the, the locals. Duke Leto is also taking this time to just upset people, <laughs> kind of left and right, because <laughs> there are some local customs, right? You have the water beggars who come by the palace to get some water, and Duke Leto, good guy that he is, as we talked about in our last book club, is like, no, that's that's gross and weird. Stop it. And then he later pretends to be drunk basically just to stir up things and kind of start getting a sense of uh, of who's who and who thinks what. Yeah, me at every wedding I go to. 
We then meet kind of a fuller cast of Arakeen personalities. And these are really the most locals that we meet thus far. Yeah. Tuik, the smuggler. Butte, the water shipper. A still suit manufacturer. A banker. Family and friends of the above. And, of course, Dr. Kynes, the planetologist. The U-turn specialist who starts chapters hating people, ends chapters loving them. <laughs> we get a lot of political dancing around topics throughout this section, uh, but basically throughout the night, Kynes and Tuik are clearly fond of the Atreides. You know, not that there are exactly lines in the sand drawn yet, but they are kind of falling on the Atreides side of things. The banker is like outed as a Harkonnen agent. And of course, like half the people in the room are like, oh yeah, he's a Harkonnen agent. <laughs> and it also kind of becomes clear to Paul that Kynes is aware of water on Arrakis that he's doing his best to keep secret. Finally, Duke Leto is called away and Paul takes over as host. There is some kind of momentary tension, but generally Paul demonstrates a great command of the room. And uh, basically... There are some kind of veiled threats, some general tensions. You know, the guards have to get ready to act. But Jessica, Kynes, and Tuick all basically demonstrate that they're ready to jump to Paul's defense if they need to. A good group to have your back for sure. So we move on to chapter 17. Jessica is awoken in the middle of the night by some ruckus in the palace. And that ruckus turns out to be a very, very drunk Duncan Idaho. And drunk Duncan Idaho openly accuses Jessica of being a Harkonnen spy. That's not a great look for my guy. <laughs> nope. <laughs> a bit too much spice beer, and he's really spilling a lot of the plan that he's supposed to keep secret. Jessica, who realizes that Duncan has been spying on her and sort of connects all of the dots and realizes that other people, specifically Thufir Hawat and maybe even her love, Duke Leto Atreides, thinks she may be the traitor, and they are keeping her under watch. She is furious, understandably, at this. Oh, totally. And demands to see Mentat Dufir Hawad in her room right away. They are going to talk this out. And the talk goes, all right, <laughs> Yeah, I guess. No one gets stabbed. No one dies. No one calls each other names openly. I guess he calls her a witch at some point. But he hesitates. <laughs> he, he hesitates, right. So yeah. it's a it's a very tense conversation in Jessica's room, and we actually get a display of some Benny Jesuit powers. More on that later in the takeaways. Yeah. Jessica uses the voice on Thufir and rattles his old bones. Yeah. <laughs> and he is quite shaken up by this, and he, he leaves, and neither of them really sort of admits, like, no, you're right, no, I'm right. It's a bit of a stalemate, and both of them refuse to give any ground during this very tense conversation. But the one thing that does come out of it is that Jessica realizes that Thufir is innocent, he is deathly loyal to his duke, and will be to his last breath. So she can count him out as the traitor. Moving on to chapter 18. Late at night, Duke Leto decides, you know what, it's time I messed up because I heard that, you know, Thufir and Jessica had this long conversation. I messed up. I should have, you know, trusted her. I should have brought her into my schemes. So I'm going to go in the charade. I'm going to go talk to her. I'm sure it's going to work out perfectly. But then he hears this like weird mewling sound and <laughs> finds first the dead body 
of Esmar Tuik, which is sad. I like him a lot. And then he finds the very nearly dead Shoutout Mapes. Shoutout to Shoutout. Now, she tries to kind of warn him, but is not able to before she dies. And then whammo bammo, he's got a paralyzing dart in his arm. So he collapses and sees Dr. Yui, who, surprise, is the traitor we learned on page 14, but he's learning now, <laughs> and also realizes that past Dr. Yui, he had turned off the palace shields. So the building is defenseless, which is not a good thing for House Atreides. Yui basically tells Duke Leto of his plans within plans within plans. Yui will save Paul and Jessica from the Harkonnen attack, but in exchange, he's basically telling Duke Leto, listen, you're dead anyway. Let's try to take out Baron Harkonnen with your death. I'm going to put a tooth, and he says tooth like 19 times. I'm going to put this tooth in your mouth. And when Baron is close to you, because he's going to get all close to you to brag and to kind of gloat, that's his personality. When he gets close to you, just bite down on this tooth. It's going to release this terribly poisonous gas. You're going to basically blow it at him. It's like terrible onion breath, and it's going to kill him. It's going to be great. Chapter 19. Jessica wakes up again. This is now two chapters where Jessica has woken up in the first paragraph. But this time, she is drugged and bound and gagged. She realizes that Yui is the traitor. No one else could have known her exact body weight and the exact drugs to give her to knock her out for a very exact amount of time, except for the doctor of the house. Right. Sadly, too little, too late, Jessica. Say, just in time. <laughs> <laughs> the Baron and Piter DeVry University arrive. <laughs> so the Baron and Piter have a little conversation and the Baron is playing some games here. He makes some empty promises to Piter. Tells him, hey, you can either have Jessica, like I promised you, or get this, I'll sweeten the pot a bit, you forget all about Jessica, and you rule Arrakis in my name. Piter thinks about it for a little bit, and then decides Arrakis greater than Jessica. Yeah. So the guards take Jessica and Paul, and the plan is to take them into an ornithopter that, note, Yui has prepared, right. and to drop them off in the desert in a place that, note, Yui has told them to. <laughs> And let them get eaten by worms or whatever happens in the desert. Basically, the idea is we don't want to know how, when, and where Jessica and Paul die. Because right. we don't want the emperor's truth sayer to interview us and for us to have to reveal the truth. The less we know, the better. <laughs> yeah. So the guards take Jessica and Paul to the predetermined location in the desert and are about to drop them off when they get hilariously overpowered <laughs> yeah. by Paul using the voice and Jessica's expert use of the voice as well on top of an iconic Paul <laughs> kick straight to the fucking diaphragm chest area that makes one guard's heart explode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> explode yeah. from a kick. Absolutely wild. So once the guards have been dispatched and hearts have been exploded, Paul <laughs> and Jessica break their bindings and make a run for it because there is another ornithopter and it's approaching quickly. Bum, bum, bum. Who's in it? Stay tuned to find out. We'll find out soon. 
So, <laughs> chapter 20. A Sardaukar in a Harkonnen uniform, so again, this is the imperial troop of the emperor, takes Duke Leto's unconscious body from Dr. Yui and is totally an asshole the whole time. <laughs> it's just a gruff <laughs> jerk the whole time. He calls Dr. Yui traitor like 14 times, which is so much fun for Dr. Yui. And Dr. Yui reflects that this is, quote, a foretaste of how history would remember him. Nevertheless, in what would be an excellent level in a stealth video game, Yui, <laughs> Yui sneaks the ducal signet ring into the frem kit he stored away for Paul and Jessica in the ornithopter we actually just read about in the last chapter. And he gets away from the ornithopter, no one's the wiser, and he basically ends the chapter watching those palm trees burn. Next up, chapter 21. Yeah. What a pivotal chapter. We finally get the meeting between Baron Vladimir Harkonnen and Duke Leto Atreides. Their meeting takes place after Yui and the Baron talk, and Yui realizes that his wife, Wana, is dead, and the Baron was lying to him. I don't know, my guy. <laughs> I could have told you that at the start of the deal. I don't know that you had to go through all the trouble, <laughs> right. but he confirms it. And of course, the Baron betrays Yui, and Piter stabs him in the back. Yui falls like a plank and is out of the game. Indeed. Now, a very drugged Duke Leto is brought into the room and is face-to-face -face with his arch-nemesis, Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. At this point, the Baron gets hungry or something, I guess, and they order dinner because the Duke is so drugged that he can barely make out what's happening, and he's very, very confused at this point, and he can't speak, and all the Baron wants to do is gloat, but you can't really gloat to someone who is clearly drugged out of their <laughs> mind. So he sits down to a lovely dinner as the Duke Leto's drugs wear off. During this time, Leto remembers the tooth, the tooth, the tooth, the tooth, and understands what he has to do. He also overhears that Paul and Jessica have gone missing, and the Baron's perfect little plot isn't so perfect. Right. And this reassures Leto quite a bit, but ultimately, he does what needs to be done. He bites down on that tooth and breathes that poisonous gas in Baron Vladimir Harkonnen's direction. But unfortunately, before the Baron breathes in any of that gas, he rushes out of the room. Piter and the Baron's personal guards jump in front and take the hit instead. Rest in peace, Piter de Vry University. Into chapter 22, final chapter in our section, Paul and Jessica, having been rescued by Duncan, definitely fucks Idaho, uh, who was flying the ornithopter <laughs> earlier, hide in a still tent as Paul trips hard, basically awakening as Neo from the Matrix. This is the real, he's the one, folks. If you hadn't, if you couldn't tell by him being the main character, he is, in fact, the main character. He tells Jessica that the Missionaria Protectiva has purchased them refuge with the Fremen, because he's kind of looking forward a little bit and that they'll call him Muad'Dib. These are his prescient abilities. And this is also when our outro may start to make sense for those of you who <laughs> are just now reading for the first time. Now, Jessica, throughout this section, is kind of spooked. She's kind of scared of mm -hmm. Paul because her 15-year-old boy, her baby boy, is clearly the one. <laughs> and 
I mean, long story short, she just realized her son's the main character. It's a big deal. It's a lot to realize. <laughs> then, as a huge truth bomb, Paul reveals huge. the truth. This is massive. Paul tells, as he promised his father he would, he tells Jessica that Duke Leto never, never doubted her for a single second. He loved her to the bottom of his soul. It's a very sweet moment. And Jessica, of course, is understandably affected by this news. And, of course, the iconic reveal that genuinely is pretty shocking. Uh, yeah. That yeah. Jessica's father is Baron Harkonnen. Vladimir. Yo! Papa Vladimir. Crazy. She <laughs> is shocked, as all of us are, because what the heck? Now, throughout this section, Paul isn't really able to be emotionally affected the way that Jessica is because he's busy tripping on that dope substance called all of space and time. He, <laughs> he finally, finally at the end, is able to kind of hit the brakes on his prescience. He's kind of able to reel in a little bit of that power. And he is able to cry, shed tears over his recently deceased father. And that wraps up our section. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. No kidding. <laughs> it's a lot. Talk about major developments and things happening. Huge. So many. <laughs> huge. Huge. Yeah. I mean, we're, we have character deaths. Deaths so on deaths on deaths, many. quite frankly. <laughs> so many people died. Uh, all crammed into like 100 page section of the book. So many people dying. The Ducal ring is gone. Right. Presumably with Paul Atreides, who is now a 15 year old Duke of a house that doesn't exist. Of a great house that may not exist. <laughs> right. And of course, we learn that he's also part Harkonnen through his mom's side. Right. Huge. Yeah. <laughs> Incredible. Huge, huge, huge. Th this is an incredibly dense and action-packed section and i'm excited to get into our takeaways i mean things are a mess our, our main characters are absolutely scattered paul and jessica are out in the desert you know granted with duncan idaho so you know, you know they're probably could be worse it could be worse but you know no matter how you look at it things are not good on top of paul's weirdness you know he's <laughs> quiz ass so hatteracking all over the place <laughs> yeah yeah, all over the place. He's leaving Quisat's Hatterack juice all over the sand. It's gross. Everywhere, you know? It, it, you know, <laughs> Quisat's Hatterack puberty isn't pretty, folks. His voice is dropping. His joints His body's ank. going through changes. His, yeah, it's it's rough. It's rough becoming the Quisat's Hatterack. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a quick break, but stick around. We'll be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's talk about uh, our three main takeaways before we get to finally, finally nerd out about some incredible uh, deep cut references. Yes. And takeaway number one is the Harkonnens have activated their trap card, folks. <laughs> the plot has unfurled. 
the thing we knew <laughs> was going to happen from chapter two. Right. Right. Yeah. From over 200 pages ago, the plot that Baron Harkonnen clearly laid out for Fade Rotha and for us as the reader has finally come to fruition. And boy, is it messy. It is looking dire for our heroes, for our protagonists, for House Atreides. The Harkonnens have all but succeeded in this plan, right? The Sardaukar helps them attack the Atreides. Yui did what he was supposed to do and delivered Duke Leto to the Baron. And Arrakis is once again under Harkonnen control. I mean, things have gone nearly perfectly for House Harkonnen, nearly being the operative word there, because the thing they didn't account for was Yui's sort of double betrayal. Right. Yeah. Plans and plans. Yui helping, helping our main character, Paul Atreides, right. get away. And some very important lieutenants in House Atreides, Duncan Idaho, Thafir Hawad, Gurney Halleck, are unaccounted for. Right. And they're yeah. powerful people that could strike back. So the plan worked in theory, but a lot of powerful chips have still been left on the table. Indeed. And let's check in to really drive this home. Let's check in with some of our characters, okay? Hey, Abu, how is Dr. Yui doing? He's dead, folks. Oh, dang. Okay, well, that's a shame. What about uh, Duke Leto? Folks, he's dead! What? Oh, gosh. He's... Oh, I love him. (laughs) He's played by Oscar Isaac. Okay, what about... uh, Oh, I really like that smuggler guy, Esmar Tuik. How's how's he doing? He's in the hallway, man. Oh, He's dead. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) What about... Oh, uh, shout-out Mapes. You know, shout-out to shout-out. Oh, my gosh. Shout-out to the real one. She's dead, too, Leo. What the... Add her to the list. (laughs) Add her to the list. Peter DeVry University, also also dead, right? He just partied too hard. (laughs) It's dangerous, folks. Freshman year of college. It's really dangerous. (laughs) Failed Uh, his classes. Dead. (laughs) That's that's the cost of failing at Peter DeVry University. (laughs) (laughs) Don't sue us, DeVry University. We're we're talking about a different place. (laughs) Well, Leo, to continue adding to our list of characters we're checking in here and hoping they're still alive. Yeah. What about Saigo, who is the guard who is charged with taking Paul and Jessica to the desert in the ornithopter and dropping them off? How's my guy doing? Uh, last I checked, he was incredibly aroused, super excited. Uh-huh. Good. And then he had his heart crushed by a child kick and is dead. No. <laughs> <laughs> heart exploded, is dead. Wow. Yeah. Wow. What a brutal way to go. What about uh, Thufir, our favorite old man who is also stubborn? <laughs> our favorite old podcaster, Thufir Hawad. <laughs> he's not dead. Okay. Hey, that's good. So things are looking a little brighter now. Yeah. He's not dead, but he is MIA. We don't know where he is. We don't know what happened to him during the Harkonnen attack on the palace. At the moment, we don't have answers to these questions. The thing we can assume, comfortably assume, is that he's probably still shaken up after getting his old bones rattled <laughs> by a glimpse of those Benny Jesuit powers. It's got to be surprising. You live your whole life based on evidence, and then you're hit with a whole new fact that someone can just tell you to sit down, and you have no choice. You have to sit down. It's crazy. 
We got Dr. Kynes suspiciously missing in action, which is an amazing little aside. You know, Baron's like, I don't like that he's not here. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, where's the guy? Reminder, Kynes was supposed to also be helping. Oh, yeah. Against the Atreides. But as we talked about in the previous episode, quote, I like this Duke. He has a change <laughs> of heart and he's very pro Atreides now. So it is extremely suspicious to the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen that Kynes is nowhere to be seen. Where's this guy that was supposed to be helping us? We also have missing Duncan Idaho. Well, not, not quite missing. Missing, according to the Harkonnens. Duncan Idaho, loudest drunken town, all-around dope <laughs> character, uh, stranded in the desert with his new duke, who is, reminder, 15 years old. I mean, able to crush a man's heart with a kick and clearly able to you know, ask adult questions and conduct himself maturely. Also the main character of the book, which is worth something. So what a wow. What a collection of characters, and most of them are dead. <laughs> most of them are dead. Ugh. So things are just simply not looking good. Not to mention, in an additional twist that I don't even know if we've heard about this yet, but Sardaukar dressed as Atreides. So Sardaukar, you know, Imperial troops dressed up as Atreides, and then sacked the Arakeen Bank, basically, it, which is crazy, to turn the guild against House Atreides, which effectively traps every single Atreides person on planet. No one can get off the planet. This is both a brilliant move and an absolutely savage move. I mean, oh my talk about blocking an exit, you know, you're really, you're really trapping them on this planet by doing that. Yeah, plants within plants within plants. I mean, clearly, the Baron Harkonnen didn't even tell Fadrotha or us, the reader, the entirety of his plans within plants within plants. This right. bank attack is absolute genius. What a brilliant tactical move on his part. It's a it's all around a very comprehensive plan to deal with just about everything except for Yui's ultimate allegiance and his conditioning, which proves the ultimate out for Paul and Jessica, who survive the plants. Right. As dire as things may look right now, right. we still have some hope, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, Paul is alive. He's got the Duke Hall ring. Jessica's there to help him. They've got Duncan Idaho backing them up. And because of Yui's assistance with the ornithopter telling the Harkonnen guards where to go, including the Frem kit under the seat, putting that letter in there, sort of revealing the truth. All of that has set Paul and Jessica maybe not up for success, but definitely up for survival. Their odds of now surviving here in the desert are much better. And obviously, as Paul tells us, when his Kwisatz Haderach powers explode all over the place, <laughs> we know that they are going to survive. They're going to find the Fremen people in the desert. And much of that is thanks to the work of Yui, what he ultimately did at the end there, despite being the traitor, despite going down in history as the traitor, he still played a role in making sure Paul and Jessica and House Atreides have some sort of hope for survival. So we got to give credit where credit is due. Clearly, hope is not completely out of the window yet. There is still some light at the end of the tunnel. And we got to remember, Jessica's got her Benny Gesserit powers, which we saw on display in these chapters. Oh, for sure. And, of course, Paul is the main character. <laughs> That's true. 
<laughs> like really, really to bring this first takeaway full circle. If the Harkonnens have activated their trap card and have just played Blue Eyes Ultimate Dragon, <laughs> Paul, who is Yugi, is about to pull some main character bullshit with Karibo. He believes in the heart of the cards, folks, and he plays Duncan <laughs> Idaho in defense mode. <laughs> that is some deep cut Yu-Gi-Oh jokes that I hope our listeners get. It's time to do Anyway, we can we can move on to takeaway number two. The Bene Gesserit. They, oh my gosh, they will rattle your bones, folks. Oh yeah. They will tell you to do things and you will end mm-hmm. up doing them. And, you know, when it's convenient for them, they will give you boners. Whether or not you oh. want to, <laughs> boom. <laughs> That's how quick it happens. It's wild. They're real powers. <laughs> we get a few examples in this section. In this takeaway, we get a few examples of how powerful, how truly powerful the Bene Gesserit are. We get an example of truth saying, not only in its applications, not only in seeing it in scenes, but also the reputation that truth saying has in the Dune universe yeah. and how powerful it is to have effectively a lie detector test that absolutely works in an empire ruled by protecting certain relationships and not, I don't know, killing very specific people. Right. The Baron does not want to face a truthsayer knowing what happens to Paul and Jessica. So he orders his guards to take care of it. He recognizes the dangers of a Bene Gesserit truthsayer and what those powers mean. And in addition to that, we have other examples of truthsaying playing a part. I mean, you mentioned earlier Paul's sort of subtle abilities because he's been trained by his mother in the Benny Gesserit ways, right. his subtle truth-saying abilities. He's asking these adult questions. He's perceptive at that dinner scene, just like Jessica. Yeah, Paul is able to pretty effectively suss out when people are lying. He right. recognizes that Dr. Kynes is hiding something at the dinner table. He recognizes that Dr. Kynes is lying about there being water on Arrakis. That's truth-saying, folks. No kidding. Not to mention... Even Jessica in that room with uh, Thufir, she recognizes immediately. She's like, oh, yeah, he's totally innocent. (laughs) She also uses this kind of awareness of details and this sussing out of people's characteristics at the dinner party. And she is really one of the first people to recognize the Harkonnen loyalist, uh, which is the banker. And this is a quote from this chapter. Now, sitting at table with her son and her duke and their guests, Hearing that Guild Bank representative, Jessica felt a chill of realization. The man was a Harkonnen agent. He had the giddy prime speech pattern, subtly masked, but exposed to her trained awareness as though he had announced it himself. So she's literally sitting there and he's like, hello, I'm a Harkonnen agent. She's like, noted. (laughs) Thank you, sir. (laughs) Thank you for talking. That speaks to her abilities. Yeah, absolutely. And what's even more incredible is that Truth saying isn't something inherent. It can be learned. Yeah, can be taught. Like Paul has learned it right. from his mother. And another example, like Dr. Yui learned it from his dead wife, Wana, right. who was a Bene Gesserit and through their marriage taught him some techniques of the Bene Gesserit. And he uses a subtle form of truth saying when he comes face to face with the Baron Harkonnen. He uses that ability that his wife taught him to 
confirm that the Baron is lying to him to confirm that Juana is no longer with us and that the Baron has tricked him. Now, truth saying isn't the only ability of the Bene Gesserit. We have examples of other abilities as well in this section. Right. This next one is actually kind of, this is just so wild. It's but yeah. <laughs> when Jessica wakes up and she's bound and gagged and trapped in the in the cellar, right? The way she counts time to figure out how long she's been unconscious <laughs> and how long it's been since she was captured is to count back her heartbeats. It's wild, incredible. <laughs> that is a wild way to measure time, but she does it, and that's because the Bene Gesserit train in something called. The Prana Bindu control. Yeah. In essence, it is mastery, complete mastery over all parts of their body, the nerves, the muscles, even something as wild as controlling their metabolism, the Bene Gesserit can train themselves to do. And clearly it comes in handy if you're trying to count time. <laughs> I would if I could have one Bene Gesserit power, the ability to control my metabolism would be pretty great. <laughs> Just yeah. literally have a beach body. <laughs> People go, how'd you do that? Ah, I chose to. <laughs> Prana Bindu, baby. Prana Bindu, baby. <laughs> <laughs> we also get a couple of good examples of the voice and kind of register trademark pending. Here we really see its true power, right? She flexes on Thufir Howitt, basically tells him to sit the fuck down, and he does, <laughs> which inc is incredible. I mean, again, Bear in mind, he is one of the universe's most capable mentats, and yeah. he's rattled to the core. It's it's wild. I mean, this really emphasizes how powerful the Bene Gesserit are and how secretive they are about their true capabilities. Yeah, exactly. The fear is blown away that Jessica has been hiding this ability from the start. And what I found really interesting, actually, was he asked her, why aren't you using this incredible power to just like defeat all the Duke's enemies? Like, what are you doing? Yeah. Why are you hiding yeah. this? Why aren't you just voicing left and right? <laughs> yeah. The voicing and everywhere. Jessica's <laughs> just voicing everywhere. <laughs> and Jessica's response is so incredible here that I actually want to read a quote. Because oh, so I, I, I won't be able to do it justice. Oh, yeah. It's so good. Quote, what would you have me destroy? Would you have me make a weakling of our Duke? Have him forever leaning on me. Power's a two-edged sword, Thufir. You think, how easy for her to shape a human tool to thrust into an enemy's vitals. True, Thufir, even into your vitals. Yet what would I accomplish? If enough of us Bene Gesserit did this, wouldn't it make all Bene Gesserit suspect? We don't want that, Thufir. We do not wish to destroy ourselves. Ugh. Amazing. So good. It makes Amazing. sense. <laughs> you don't want everyone to know you have this incredibly overpowered ability because then no one would trust you. And their whole thing is, as we've seen, they are not the empresses. They don't take over the empire. They stand at the side of the emperor. They stand beside Dr. Yui and beside Count Hasmeir Fenring and, of course, beside Duke Leto Atreides. They're everywhere. Right. If they weren't trusted, all of their plans would crumble down. It's, it's such a good retort, and it's one perfectly crafted for someone like Thufir, who lives his entire life based on logic, or logic pro-10, as our stupid intro joke. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it's such a dangerous power. I also love, so the the scene with Jessica and Thufir, she's able to do that with Thufir immediately because she knows him super, super well. She understands how to motivate him and how to talk to him and sort of what vocal tics would elicit what reactions from the old man. When we watch Jessica overpower the guards, she doesn't straight away go, stab yourselves in the chest, you idiots, because yeah. the voice isn't magic. This is not some supernatural power. It's manipulation. It is understanding what people want and using that in a way, toning your voice and doing everything, performing this, this act almost, if you know your audience, you can do that even better. So she understands these two men are driven by, in part, lust. So she goes, oh, don't fight over me, <laughs> knowing that they're going to be like, oh, fuck, we should fight over. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's, <laughs> right, right. it's not magic. It's just manipulation made more powerful by knowing the person, which, of course, it all comes down to observing. Truly, truly. And actually... Speaking of manipulation, Oof, yeah. <laughs> the last thing in our Benny Jesuit takeaway section that we want to touch on today yes. is the Missionaria Protectiva. We've heard it name dropped quite a few times. We mentioned it in our previous book club episode, but let's talk a bit more about it today. Think back to Jessica's first conversation with Shadow Mapes when they first arrived on Arrakis. Right. That was a tense conversation. A Knife was involved, blood was yeah. drawn, and Jessica could very well have died there, but it was only the legends and superstitions planted by the Missionaria Protectiva that helped her survive. That made it so when she said the word maker, right. shout out Mabes instantly thought she was one of the legendary chosen ones because of the stories and myths that were planted by the Missionaria Protectiva. We even have a quote here from that section. Remember, quote, A Bene Gesserit of the Missionaria Protectiva dropped here long centuries ago. Long dead, no doubt, but her purpose accomplished. The protective legends implanted in these people against the day of a Bene Gesserit's need. This is, this is wild. These are legends planted among the Fremen in case a Bene Gesserit needs a, a lifeline. In case a Bene Gesserit needs a safety net, it's wild. That is some long-term planning, folks. Hundreds of years. It's crazy. The yeah. Bene Gesserit are working on a very extended timeline for their plans. That much is clear. And they are much more dangerous than we have first been led to believe. Even Dr. Kynes at the dinner party mentions the shortening of the way. And the shortening of yeah. the way translates to Quisat's Hatterack, which we know is wow. our main character. <laughs> and Jessica's like, yo, I know that word. That might be my boy. Jessica wonders, quote, did our missionary protectiva plant that legend here too? You know, you really have to wonder how deep does this belief system go and how much of all of this is believed? Clearly a lot, clearly a lot more than you might initially anticipate. Yeah. The, the fact that Fremen natives, people that have maybe never left the planet Dune, are saying Bene Gesserit words, yeah. the shortening of the way. I mean, that is clear proof that the Missionary Protectiva has been on this planet, have planted all of these Bene Gesserit 
myths and legends and superstitions in order to support a future Benny Gesserit that arrives, in order to make sure that someone like Jessica, once again, can say all the right words to a Fremen to make them instantly believe in her. And in fact, put her on a pedestal and believe that she's some sort of legendary figure. Even later on, when Paul and Jessica are in the desert, in the still tent, Jessica is reading from the Frem kit the manual of the friendly desert. She's sort of perusing this book that's in the Frem kit Hilarious that title. Yui left them. Hilarious title. Friendly <laughs> desert. Yeah. I disagree, sir. Coriolis so storms. Sand that cuts metal. <laughs> friendly. Yeah. Good. 400 foot worms. <laughs> friendly. Yeah. <laughs> they just want to hug, folks. They just want a 400 foot yard, 400 foot long hug. <laughs> But you don't survive it. They do. That's the catch. (laughs) But while she's reading this manual, Jessica thinks to herself, quote, it reads like the Azar book, she thought, recalling her studies of the great secrets. Has a manipulator of religions been on Arrakis? End quote. Once again, manipulation, religion, superstition, myth, all of these tools that the Bene Gesserit use, all of these tools that they have in their toolkit. And as Paul peeks behind the curtain, not like two minutes later, <laughs> and is looking at all of time and space, he says, quote, the Missionaria Protectiva has bought us a bolt hole, right? Literally yeah. naming it for what it is. And Jessica at that moment's like, what the hell? How does he know about the Missionaria Protectiva? Right. Yo, like I taught him truth saying, but I did not tell him <laughs> about that. Which, you know, is pretty... uh. It does. It's a good moment to know that she didn't teach him everything, right? She's like giving him right. a tool set, but maybe not all of the inner workings of the Benny Gesserit. But yes, no, I mean, again, speculation aside, Paul looks into time and space and goes, oh, yeah, that missionary protectiva is doing its job. We've got a safe place among the Fremen. Right, right. And that's our takeaway number two. Basically, that the Benny Gesserit are much more powerful, much more manipulative and a much bigger threat than first meets the eye. And I personally, I don't know how you feel about this, Leo, but I love that this makes Jessica into a powerhouse. Oh, yeah. Something that she really isn't in her first introduction to us in the book, right? At the start, she's really just the Duke's concubine, Paul's mother. She She's just plays this sort of generic womanly motherhood role until really that scene with Thufir where we realize, oh shit. Yeah, yeah. Jessica is formidable. She is dangerous and powerful and honestly one of the most self-sufficient characters in the entire book. No kidding. Yeah, she's one of the most powerful people we've met (laughs) ever. (laughs) It's wild. She really is very capable. It's a great way of putting it. She's very self-sufficient. Okay, let's round out our takeaway section with our final takeaway for today. Paul has awoken. Yeah, he has. <laughs> that final chapter. My God, oh, what a chapter to wild. round out this section. Yeah. Paul, no time to mourn Atreides. We got to guess. <laughs> he is all business. But, you know, here's what we know from this chapter. His powers are starting to activate. Some of his powers are awakening in a way that he is not anticipating either. Now, this is probably due to kind of an accumulation of spice in his diet and also kind of the stress 
of escape and the, you know, adrenaline of having to explode a man's heart with his feet. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot for a young 15 year old man. You know, you, yeah, I remember yeah. the first time I exploded someone's heart with my foot. It was a big deal, an emotional big day. deal. It's a pivotal moment in any young child's life. <laughs> yeah, we all remember that. So clearly <laughs> his Benny Gesserit practices and his training as a mentat are part of his sort of awakening, right? He mentions noticing the ornithopter's movement and sort of putting together immediately that it is Duncan Idaho. But he also says outright, he's not something the Benny Gesserit were actually expecting. Right. They were expecting this Quisatz Hatterack. He says he's not the Quisatz Hatterack, but something different. Now, this kind of reads to me as semantics, <laughs> I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. This, this whole little section is him just saying, like, yeah, I'm the main character, but maybe you didn't quite know what you were getting. Right. And and my understanding of this was that the, to the Bene Gesserit, the Kwisatz Haderach is something they control, right? right. something yes. they created. And this is essentially Paul's way of saying, I am not what you expected. I am not something you can control. I am something totally different. I am not your Kwisatz Haderach. But for all intents and purposes, he does have all of the incredible power that the Bene Gesserit were hoping to get from a Kwisatz Haderach. They were just hoping they controlled it. In this case, they don't. And he's also kind of taken aback by his own powers. He really, in this chapter, delivers this clear sense of he's not really in control of these prescient visions, these waking prescient dreams. He's not yeah. in control of this vast calculation that's happening in his mind. And at a moment that he's really wishing he could just mourn for his father, who died so recently... He is just caught in this very detached intellectual breakdown of what's going on. And it really is tragic. It's like, yeah, he's awakening as the one. He's leaving Kwisatz Haderach juice everywhere. But <laughs> the whole time, he's just wanting to have a quiet moment where he shares his mother's grief and pain. And he's completely incapable, at least for most of the chapter. Yeah, completely. And look, he proves that he is the Kwisatz Haderach to his mom. Right. By dropping, as we mentioned earlier, massive bombshells on her that no one should be able to know. On top of just knowing that the Missionaria Protectiva exists, right. Paul also tells his mother, hey, you're going to give birth to my sister, St. Alia of the Knife, later on. And she's like, what? <laughs> I have told nobody, and there's no way that I could physically be showing any signs of pregnancy. And in fact, she points out the only reason she knows she's pregnant is because of her Pranabendu training. She's like four weeks pregnant. <laughs> she is very, right. very recently pregnant. She's aware of this life growing inside of her. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. She is not showing. It's, this is so early. This is why it's so crazy. Right. And if that wasn't enough, <laughs> right, Paul right. goes the extra mile here <laughs> yeah. and drops an absolute bombshell that, frankly, I still sort of viscerally remember the first time I ever read Dune and the first time this reveal happened. Right. I was just as blown away as Jessica is by this. He reveals to her that her dad, and reminder, she doesn't know her own lineage. It's been hidden from her her entire life. Her dad is the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. 
And it, it all just clicks into place for her. She starts to notice the genetic markers on Paul's face. She starts to think of her own genetic markers that prove that they have Harkonnen genes. What a way to pull the rug out from under your mom and prove that you are the Kwisatz Haderach. We also get, you know, Paul mentions as he's gazing forward across this sort of handkerchief blowing in the wind that is space and time. He recognizes these two paths that he can take, (laughs) that he kind of has some control over choosing. One that ends in a jihad. That's not good. And then the other path that contains actions, quote, that sickened him, (laughs) which you got to wonder, what is that much worse than a jihad? Like that's, that's got to be a pretty dark path. And genuinely in this chapter, it's unclear. It it is unclear which path he's going to take or, or if maybe there are other paths. This is just the vision he's having at this moment, but man, what a sight for a 15 year old who just, it's a lot. Yeah, it's, it's dark. And we, we start to recognize that these aren't exactly superpowers that our main character has. This is a burden. And prescience is maybe not all it's cracked up to be. The idea of knowing the future seems cool, but would you really want to? Gotta That's sort that of fine what print. Paul is going through. Yeah, yeah. exactly. The fine print <laughs> for prescience is like, sucks. yo, you're going to see some dark shit. <laughs> so those are our three takeaways, right? Yeah. We've got the Harkonnens activating their Yu-Gi-Oh trap card, basically winning, <laughs> except for the fact that the main character survived. Damn. We've got the Bene Gesserit, way more powerful than they probably immediately appeared, but certainly very, very capable. And it's good that Jessica's with Paul in the desert. But you know what? Paul in the desert, he's the main character and he's awakening to those main character powers. All right. We're going to keep this conversation going, but first a quick break. Let's now get to my favorite part, which is the deep cut lightning round nuggets of just lore that is in the pages you just read that unless you are as obsessive as me and Abu may have passed you by. And if they didn't, let's just celebrate how cool they are. Let's get into it. And actually to kick it off, Leo, I'm going to let you take this first nugget because you did the deep dive research on this one. And you were so excited about this. I can't take this from you. (laughs) Thank you. I love it so much. (laughs) So we have a reference to the Star Searcher and Flying Dutchman, Ampolaros. In her discussion with Thufir, Jessica muses that the Atreides men who are drinking nervous and afraid are, quote, like the men of the lost Star Searcher, Ampolaros, sick at their guns, forever seeking, forever prepared, and forever unready. Ugh, such a good little quote. Now, These are one of those tiny little references that I want to do a whole episode on, but not only do we not have time, (laughs) it's also just, there isn't much to it other than what I'm about to say. So I'll just, I'll just try to make this as quick as is possible for me. Uh, And I am frustrated at Frank for mentioning cool stuff on every other page. So from the terminology of the Imperium at the back of the book, the legendary flying Dutchman of space, that's the entirety of the Ampolaros's legacy. But to elaborate, and this is especially if you don't know the tale of the Flying Dutchman, according to the Dune Encyclopedia, Ampolaros was a limited-range planetary cruiser that set out towards the Niushe system in 480 BG, 
which is about 10,000 years before Dune begins. This was pre-spacing guild travel, so it was a slog. This ship was a limited-range cruiser, and before they arrived at their destination, they came upon an abandoned ship. Ooh, spooky. The entire crew contracted from that abandoned ship something from the vessel and basically went crazy. They went mad. They got space sickness or something. They decide that all of civilization has been wiped out except for them by aliens. <laughs> so the only course of action is to load up their guns, man their battle positions, and basically just go. Like just fly, fly, fly until the aliens show up. And during this time, they also veer wildly off course. Now, it's noted the ship was never found. And the legend says they're still searching the stars, which sounds like comically tropey, you know? Legend says they're still out there today. But the thing is, and this is my favorite sci-fi element to this story, they are traveling at near light speed. So as the Dune Encyclopedia puts it, quote, the time dilation effect of near light speed travel making the crew almost immortal. <laughs> oh my God. So these crazy people at their guns, ready to just battle aliens that don't exist, are nearly immortal as they zoom around space at nearly light speed. That's the Ampoleros, the one word reference that Jessica makes, <laughs> which I have now Amazing. used to spend like six minutes of your life. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Now you know too much about it. And when Jessica says it in the movie, you can tell your neighbor at the theater <laughs> hey. all about the Impolerance, the flying Dutchman <laughs> of space. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. All right. Gom Jabbar. <laughs> Amazing. That's science fiction at its best, folks. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Our next lore nugget is something called Crimscale Fiber. Yeah. Which, if you have listened to our ECAS episode, you know is from the planet ECAS. Yup. <laughs> from the terminology of the Imperium, the definition for Crimscale Fiber is, quote, the claw fiber woven from strands of the huff from ECAS. Knots tied in Crimscale will claw tighter and tighter to preset limits when the knot lines are pulled. End quote. So it's incredible that Jessica recognizes this because if she had fought her bindings, they'd only get tighter. They'd only restrict her further. That's the special properties of Crimscale fiber. Right. Now, something fun to think about. <laughs> we're certain. Right. This is headcanon for me and Leah, but we're 100% <laughs> certain this is true. Right. Crimscale fiber is most definitely used in vast quantities for various purposes on the sex planet of Gamont. Yep. And if you know, folks, <laughs> then you know. More on that planet in a bit, too, as it turns out. Yeah. All right. The next nugget is Samuta. Hell yeah. We are back yeah. with more drugs. <laughs> My drugs. favorite. Samuta is another type of narcotic in Dune, and it is also derived from, you can probably guess it, Ikaz. The of planet Ikaz. It's everywhere. I love it. It's my favorite planet. So from the terminology of the Imperium, quote, the second narcotic derivative by crystal extraction from burned residue of Ilaka wood. The effect 
described as timeless, sustained ecstasy, is mm, elicited mm, mm. by certain atonal vibrations referred to as samuta music. And in case you didn't notice that friendly little word, reminder that the Baron has a tabletop. His desk is made of ilaka wood. So incredible. Again, he's got a table made of drugs. Wild stuff. Wild stuff. All right. I mentioned Gamont earlier. Let's talk about it. Indeed. The planet Gamont comes up in this chapter for, frankly, a horrible, horrible reason. Right. After the tooth incident, the, tooth. the Baron barely survives with his life. And at the end of that chapter, he decides he's hungry and he wants some entertainment. So he tells a guard to bring that young fellow they bought on Gamont to the Baron's quarters. And as we talked about in our Planets of Dune episode, Planet Gamont is a sex planet. <laughs> Basically, yeah. <laughs> From the terminology of the Imperium, quote, third planet of Nyushi, noted for its hedonistic culture and exotic sexual practices. Take me to Gamont, folks, is all I'm saying. <laughs> now I'm sweating for two reasons. Wow. <laughs> Either way, it is absolutely disgusting that the Baron clearly right. bought a young sex worker from Gamont and now uses them for their personal pleasure. It just goes to show how villainous and how awful Baron Vladimir Harkonnen truly is. Yeah. But speaking of him, we have our next nugget. The Baron Harkonnen, as Jessica's father, reveal is huge. I mean, again, it's massive. Huge. I remember the moment I read that the first time. And I think if you are reading it for the first time now, you can agree it's a big deal. But there is actually a hilariously heavy-handed hint about this yeah. on page nine of the book. Gaius Helen Moheim basically studies Paul's features. And this is the excerpt. Quote, the old woman studied Paul in one gestalten flicker. Face oval like Jessica's, but strong bones. Hair, the Duke's black black, but with brow line of the maternal grandfather who cannot be named. And ellipsis, it continues. Folks, Wow. again, clearly maternal grandfather is going to be talked about. Again, this, this in retrospect is almost a heavy-handed hint. Uh, or, yeah. you know what? Or could be possible... That Gaius Moheim is like, you know what? Paul's grandfather is clearly Voldemort. Oh, no. <laughs> cannot be named. Just don't. He who cannot be named. <laughs> she's like, she's a huge Pottermore fan. What can I say? She's like super into it. Yeah, what a, what a treat that you can only understand this type of foreshadowing on a reread of Dune. Oh, totally. Wild stuff. So early on in the book. Page nine. Crazy. All right. Moving on to another book, actually, that's mentioned in these pages. The Azar book. Yeah. When Jessica is flipping through that manual of the friendly <laughs> desert, which we disagree with. So friendly. I don't know who, what fucking idiot wrote this book, but <laughs> a reminder that Jessica thinks to herself, quote, it reads like the Azar book has a manipulator of religions been on Arrakis. Yeah. Now to get a true deep dive on the Azar book and to understand its history and place in the Dune universe, we highly recommend you check out our recent Orange Catholic Bible episode. Right. We deep dive into religion. We deep dive into the Orange Catholic Bible, which also mentioned many times in the pages we've read thus far. So if you're interested in learning more about that, there's a whole hour-long episode dedicated <laughs> to just that. But basically, yep. in summary, the Azar book acts like a roadmap for all of the religions that were incorporated 
into the Orange Catholic Bible. All of the ancient religions that presumably came from Earth and evolved as humanity exploded out among the stars and traveled deeper and deeper into space. And as spirituality and religion and beliefs evolved, the Azar book tracks those evolutions and points out where in the OC Bible certain religious texts came from. It's the bibliography for the OC Bible. <laughs> right. Long story short, file all of this under a reference that <laughs> you definitely probably won't catch the first time unless you are a an avid listener of Gamjabar the podcast. <laughs> yeah, let, let's go ahead and file the Azar book right next to Umpala Rose. <laughs> Under shit, I didn't get the first time I read Dune. (laughs) Right. No kidding. Oh, my God. Well, Leo, we have done it again. (sighs) Yeah. And Quick, short episode. In fact, I I, got to admit to you that I had a vision that we'd get through this episode recording in one piece. Oh, my God. And we have. Whoa. I had a vision we wouldn't. So I guess you're the Uh, Kwisatz Haderach and I'm (laughs) Thufir Howitt, just getting getting shit wrong. Yeah, what a jam-packed episode. <laughs> we are officially through the first arc of the book. Yeah. And on the next episode, we will be jumping into part two, titled Muad'Dib. And so, for our next episode, be sure that you've read through page 420. I'm sure there's a joke Blaze to be it. made in there. <laughs> Blaze it. <laughs> Get that Samuda going. Uh up until the sentence, timeless sustained ecstasy, that's not the sentence. Up until the sentence, quote, <laughs> now we are 73. Can't wait. Well, friends, there is no real ending. It's just the place where you stop the recording. But this podcast is always one step beyond logic. So help us spread the word of Muadib and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Lord Party Podcast Network, on loreparty.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lore underscore party. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, he who controls the podcast controls the universe. We'll see you on the golden path. Welcome to Gamjabar, your guide to the iconic world of Dune. <laughs> Excuse me. Uh, Gosh. I'm just allergic to some Bullshit. That didn't feel like a heartfelt welcome. You know Liam. what? You called me out, but I, I... want you to welcome our right. goddamn listeners. All right. I'll get myself moving. <sighs> okay. Here we go. <laughs> welcome to. Okay. <clears throat> <laughs>